morning, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day weekend. My husband got bronchitis for Valentine's Day, and I got a sinus infection. So if you're married for 28 years, you too can experience this romantic bliss. <coughs> so I'll try to hang in there this morning. Um, three years ago, I ruined Christmas for myself. True story. I know. Just wait until you hear the rest. <laughs> I had, in my head, developed a series of plans to try to make our Christmas Eve gathering as a family perfect. And it would have been perfect, except no one, not a one, followed my plan. And so after church that evening, we got home and, you know, my whole family was there, my, you know, nuclear family, and then my parents, my brother, and his wife, and three kids. And during the course of the start of the evening, I'll spare you all the details, But all of my brilliant plans crumbled around me in one long, slow, horrifying moment. So while my family laughed and celebrated Christmas Eve in our dining room, I lay in our bedroom upstairs crying in frustration, anger, and embarrassment. And the whole time that I was laying there, steaming at all the people who didn't do what I wanted them to do, I was also thinking, I wonder what people at Orchard Hill Church would think if they knew right now this is where I was. It was a kind of humiliating moment. And I spent the entire night in my bed because nobody did what I wanted them to do so that we could have a perfect night. And I I share this with you. I haven't shared this story uh, very much because it's really embarrassing and awkward. But I wanted to remind, well, first of all, I wanted to try to beat Jeff Mickey's story of his wife going to the bathroom with the door open. So I thought maybe I'd bring this one up. Did no one hear that? Okay, that's awkward. <laughs> it's true, Livia, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> no, I, I wanted to tell you that and I wanted to start with it because I wanted to really remind you afresh, you heard it from Dave, you heard it from Jeff, that when we say here there are no perfect families, we mean it. And we live that out in our own lives. And frankly, the lesson that that evening taught me is that the harder we try to be perfect, the worse we tend to make things. So it took me 50 years to get that one. So I'm giving it, I'm just serving it up on a platter for you guys this morning for free. The perfect family is a myth. It just is. So let me tell you something though, that is not a myth. Families, whatever form or shape they take, whatever form or or shape your current family takes, most families right now are both stressed and exhausted. So tired. I read this statistic the other day. A a psychologist um, wrote that the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Just let that soak in. College students, I'm confident this applies to you as well. You know, so no wonder teenagers feel a little crazy and their parents do also. There were 60 million prescriptions written for sleeping pills in 2011. American workers are taking fewer vacation days per year than we have in the last four decades. We've been given time off and we don't take it. Marriages are under pressure. The middle class is underwater financially and swimming as fast as we can. Blended families are struggling to blend. Divorce is painful and hard. And I know so many people my age who are trying to launch their adult children into the world while also walking alongside aging parents. Families are exhausted. I just wonder how many of you walked in here this morning tired and in need of some good news 
A pastor named Tully and Chavidjan, who's actually Billy Graham's grandson, he's a pastor down in Florida, he said the good news of God's inexhaustible grace for an exhausted world has never been more urgent. And I would change that just slightly and say the good news of God's inexhaustible grace for exhausted families has never been more urgent. My family needs grace. Your families need grace. The unearned favor of God given to fallen people through Christ. And may I humbly submit to you this morning that though our families desperately need grace, too many of our families are not characterized by grace but instead by things like guilt or shame or fear because we don't or we can't measure up. And so I have two things, just two simple things I want to say about that this morning. And the first is this, that we need to receive God's grace for our families. We need to receive it. And I am talking to those of us in this room who have followed Christ for decades as well as those of us who don't quite know him yet. Family life is one of those places where when we're honest, we feel the most broken. We feel the most deficient. No matter what our families look like from the outside, we feel like there is this ideal and that others probably meet it, but not us. And so we hide and we pretend and we come to church and we bury ourselves internally with guilt and shame. And I just want to say to you this morning as clearly as I can that the message of God for you is grace. It is not condemnation. It is compassion and it is loving kindness. Not just for you as individuals, but for our families as family units. I believe when Jesus stood on the mountain and started his most famous sermon with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. It was as if he was saying, if your family struggles spiritually, or if your spouse or your parents don't believe in Jesus, or your kids are rejecting your faith or in a period of exploration, or if your whole family feels deficient spiritually, or you feel deficient in your role somehow, the message of God for you is grace. It is not condemnation. When Jesus said in that same sermon, blessed are those who mourn, it was as if he was saying, you who have lost a baby or have lost the dream of having a baby or have lost a marriage or, or have watched their parents' marriage crumble or if you've suffered the death of a spouse or the loss of a parent or the sadness of never finding someone to love and marry or your marriage is growing cold or you've lost any kind of dreams related to family or you've just, you just have this deep internal knowledge that you failed as a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother or a daughter or a son, the message of God for you is grace, is not condemnation. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, which really meant those people who get picked on and can't defend themselves, it was as if God was saying, when your kids ridicule you, which my kids do about my clothing, and then I always say to them, you know why I wear these clothes? Because I'm helping to send you to college, so why don't you just... Zip it. (laughs) Or your spouse nags you all the time. Or maybe your parents are just never satisfied. You can never quite live up to their expectations. 
Or you have voices in your head that won't stop telling you how awful you are. Jesus wanted you to know that the message of God for you is grace. It is not condemnation. And when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, it was as if he was saying, for those of you whose families are not at peace, and you are always trying to keep the peace or make the peace, and even for those of you who are the ones always ruining the peace, the message of God for you is grace. It is not condemnation. And my question to you this morning isn't, How much better can you make your family by trying a lot harder? My question is, are you willing to lay down your pride? Are we willing to lay down the idol of the perfect Christian family that too many of us worship at? And are we willing to just humbly say to Jesus, I've been trying to carry the weight of this family thing all on my own. I'm sorry, Jesus. I decided your grace doesn't have anything to do with my family. And I was wrong. I'm sorry. Somewhere along the way, I started to believe your work on the cross wasn't enough, that your grace wasn't enough for my family. The grace of Jesus is enough. God's mercy, his hope, his kindness is what he offers you right in the middle of your biggest family dysfunction. He sees it. He knows it better than you do. And I want to remind you that grace isn't just forgiveness. It's not just some kind of one-time thing that God offers us. It is the unearned favor of God poured out on us over and over again. It is the message that he loves you, that he is for you, that he is with you, that he wants to empower you, that he understands and knows your weakness, and he wants to be your strength. You see, grace is also the strength of God, and we are called we who are made right with Christ are called to stand in that grace. Listen to what the book of Romans says in the fifth chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, made right with God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Do you see that last part? That's so important for us. When I read that, I picture God's grace like this rushing river of power and light and forgiveness and goodness that is available to us all the time through Christ. And all we have to do is step into it. And then we have to stay in it. Stand in it. But so many of us step out of it. We step out of the river of God's grace All the time, especially when it comes to our families. And then we think that what we got to do is muscle up our own effort, you know, and just try harder and do better rather than trust in and rest in and become empowered by the grace of God. So some of us this morning, I believe the, the thing that God most desperately wants us to do is to just simply confess that our quest for the perfect family is killing us or... That our guilt or our shame about whatever has gone on in our family is killing us. And that through Christ 
It is not all up to us. Thank you, God. We need to confess that God loves us and that he can and will provide grace and power for us right where we most need it. In the middle of whatever is going on in our family life. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. We need to receive the grace of God into our families over and over and over. And then my second point is that we need to give God's grace to each other in our families. First receivers and then givers. And holy smokes, you guys, this is big. Because we are so rarely told to be givers of grace in our families. We are much more likely to be told to be punitive and to focus on discipline and to make people learn responsibility and to hold people accountable. And I'm not saying don't do those things. I've raised three kids. I get it. But when those things supersede grace, we run into trouble. It's just like this strangest thing to me. It's as if the equation stops, right? God gives me grace over and over and over again. And then somehow in my deep wisdom, I believe it is my job to then withhold it from the people that I love the most in this world. Peter writes this little sentence at the very end of his second letter, 2 Peter 3.18. This has been a prayer that I've prayed for my children for years. It just simply says this, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. What if 2015 was the year that our families, your family, whatever role you play in it, grew in grace simply by offering it to each other? A couple years ago, when my son William, who's now a sophomore in college, was a, a senior at West High in Waterloo. He had just, it was about this time of year, he had just finished 12 college applications and he was the captain of the swim team. He was having a pretty good year. He got an idea in his head that 17-year-old boys do and it was a good idea in his own head that he was going to start a Twitter account using the name of the West High swim coach. Don't try this at home. This is not a good idea. And so he started a Twitter account with the coach's actual name. And then he and several other West High swimmers posted things on this account, little tweets that they sent out that were dumb and inappropriate by anyone's standard. But if you believe they were actually the tweets, the words of the actual swim coach, they were super inappropriate. I had no idea this was happening. And you people with younger kids are thinking, well, now you should have had an idea that was happening. And I just say, well, you just wait. You just wait. (laughs) So one day, a Cedar Falls swimmer read some of these tweets. My gosh, the West High swim coach, so inappropriate. He showed them to his mother. And the mother called a West High swim team mother who also happened to sit on the Waterloo school board. And they wondered together if the coach had actually started this Twitter account or if there was some other perpetrator out there. And so the investigation went on, and I, again, had no idea this was going on until a friend called me and alerted me to what had happened. The authorities were on to William. And I was mad as snot at that kid. 
I mean, I steam was coming out of my ears. I was ranting around the home. And so what I decided I was going to do was drive over to the swimming pool where he was swimming, storm through the doors and pluck that kid out of the pool by his hair and hold him up in his speedo and belittle him in public. It was because I was scared. I was scared about what this meant. And I was mad. And so in my one act of wisdom, I called my husband. And I said, now listen, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> listen, if I wasn't married to Chuck, I would be in prison by now. I mean, <laughs> he stops me from every crazy idea I have. He's like, no. <laughs> we want to, you know, and he said, we're going to wait until he comes home. Let's let him finish practice. And then we will determine his level of remorse and go from there. Man, that was a good plan, though. So, but here's the question. Can you imagine how he would have felt had I gone and done that? Can you imagine the damage to our relationship had I gone and done that? Can you imagine how you and I would feel about God how close and honest we would want to be with him, how much we would trust him, if what he chose to do every time we messed up was to publicly shame and humiliate us. Again, Talia and Chivijan said, nothing is more potent than love in the midst of deserved judgment. Nothing is more potent than love in the midst of deserved judgment. So my son came home from swim practice and he walked in the door and he just looked at his dad and me and he said right away, I'm such an idiot. I'm so sorry. This was so stupid. And he was scared and he was concerned and he spent hours fixing his mistake and he had a face-to-face meeting with the coach and he apologized and our relationship was sustained and he knew we were for him. Nothing is more potent than love. In the midst of deserved judgment. Grace is always more powerful than punishment and guilt and shame and fear. And may I just say this one thing. I feel so compelled by God to say that sometimes the person you and I need to offer more grace to, that we need to offer love to in the midst of deserved judgment is ourselves. And you who spend a lot of time engaging in self-condemnation know who you are. So how do we live in grace in our families? You know, because families are not only imperfect, they are hard. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're wonderful. I love my family. But they are sloppy, messy, hard sometimes. I want to tell you a secret. Karl Barth who is a Swiss Reformed theologian. He, he's died a while back. Some people call him the greatest theologian of the 20th century. This man spent his life studying the depths of theological knowledge and the scriptures. And he comes up out of all that deep thinking and he says this one sentence. He said, laughter is the closest thing we have to the grace of God. Something as simple as human laughter can train us in the ways of grace. In November, uh, my son had emergency surgery late one evening. 
for an abdominal thing that was quite serious. And he's in Philadelphia, which is, you know, at least two plane rides away, and I couldn't get to him until the next morning. So the surgeon called us about midnight, my husband and me, and told us that she thought the tumor that she removed from William's abdomen was, was cancer. And she even told us the type of cancer. And so that was one of the longest, most sleepless nights of my life. And as I made the journey, the long journey starting the next morning to his hospital room, you can imagine I was serious, right? And, and well-deserved. I mean, my face was set. I was going to get in there and I was going to nail that thing, whatever that enemy was that had come at my son. But in the night, my two East Coast girls had both taken the train in from D.C. and New York and gotten to their brother ahead of me where they were providing for him not my mother-induced intensity and panic and fear and seriousness. But what they were providing for William was laughter and jokes about 3XL hospital gowns and post-surgical procedures of all kinds. And when I arrived, I finally made it to the hospital. My two daughters didn't even let me go see William until they took me to lunch. And they pretty much said to me, Mom, you need to lighten up or you're going to freak him out. Don't you hate it when your kids become wiser than you? It just ticks me off royally. You know, and they just said, it's not what he needs right now. I get it. We get it. But this is not what he needs. Seven days later, I got the call that it wasn't cancer. My dad still thinks the tumor was a pile of congealed cheese whiz from too many Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. But it's unknown. Sometimes, even in our darkest moments, laughter is the closest thing we have to the grace of God. And some of us need to laugh more in our families. We just do. And I know, you know, that laughter and grace are not the same thing. But sometimes we can just practice grace by laughing. And, and, and our laughter, those moments of humor, are these tiny micro breaks in all of our family seriousness that might allow God to shove a little grace in the window while we're not looking, you know? So let's talk about one last step in this, in this process. Jeff Mickey talked in his video, his Christmas Eve video, um, here at Orchard, about how the word for grace, the Greek word in the Bible, the word for grace, which is charis, is, is from the same root word as the Greek word for joy, which is kara. They both come from the same root word, grace and joy. They are what I like to call kissing cousins. So as we practice in our families being first receivers of the grace of God and then givers of that same grace back to each other, we should start to experience more and more of the joy of God. I believe a true and deep understanding of grace that it is not all up to me anymore, that I don't have to try to be perfect, that God is going to handle things in my family, should lead us to joy. And I love Paul Salhammer's definition of joy. He said, joy is the deep, settled confidence that God is in control of every area of my life, even of my family life. And I love 
how Jesus navigated this issue with his disciples, you know, just as he's getting ready to head to the cross. So I would guess this was kind of a serious moment. And he's talking to his disciples about what's about to happen and what it all means and how much he loves them and how he's going to send the Holy Spirit and all of these things. And in the midst of this, in John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then in chapter 17, he turns his face toward his father and he starts to pray. And in verse 13, he says, Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, my followers, may have the full measure of my joy within them. This is the purpose of what he was saying to his followers. And notice that he did not say to them, listen, things are going to get tough right here. And what you need to do is get way more serious and crabby and mean and grumpy and no nonsense and focused and ticked off. He doesn't say it. He says, you know what I want? I want my joy to be fully in you. Joy is the deep, settled confidence that God is in control of every area of my life. So get this then, my control freak friends. If God is in control of every area of my life, including my family life, then I don't have to be in control anymore. And I don't have to ruin Christmas anymore. I can trust God. And therefore, I can laugh even at myself. When all my plans fail, I can choose joy even when the circumstances in my family feel dark and unknown. I can choose joy when my family feels like it should win the Dysfunctional Family of the Year Award for the hundredth time. And I can choose joy when I'm the cause of all of that family dysfunction. I can choose joy even when my family crumbles. Because joy is the deep, settled confidence that God is in control of every area of my life. And listen, joy is not some kind of extra credit little frilly thing that we add on just for fun. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. This is what we're going to spend eternity in. And Lewis Smeads, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary, said, if you miss out on joy... You miss out on the reason for your existence. This is why we are a church, Orchard Hill Church, that encourages children to run the hallways, that that plays loud music, that smiles when kids stand on the pews or dance in the aisles, because we want next generations to equate God with joy, laughter, and grace. And do you know why we want them to do this? Because when they grow up and are like us, they're going to need it. They're going to need it when that call comes that their child is in emergency surgery or the cancer diagnosis actually is true or when their spouse walks out on them or their bank account is in the red or their child runs away. They will need joy like you and I need joy when life gets hard and confusing. Because as the prophet Jeremiah said to the Israelites, The joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And I, you know, I watch some of us, I listen to some of us, and we're treating life in our families as if we're in some kind of a death march. You know, we've gotten so serious and so clamped down and so controlling that God couldn't squeeze his grace in if he tried. And God says instead to us, my grace is enough for you, even for your family. Will you just let go of all of your efforts to live up to some kind of a standard that you've created in your own head? And would you just come to me? Would you just grow in my grace? And for Lord's sake, would you just laugh a little? It's the closest thing you have to my grace. God is in control. He really is. Even of your most broken places. And grace and joy are kissing cousins. So as you infuse your family life with grace, even on your darkest days, you will find joy. And it is the joy of the Lord, not our own efforts in our families, that will make us strong. Let's pray. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. God, our families are great gifts And they are also the places in our life that cause us the most pain and I think the most guilt. And yet, you offer us this gift of your grace, this never-ending, unearned favor through Christ. You want to just pour it abundantly into our families. And then you want each one of us to offer it to each other as well. And in those simple acts, God, You promise to help us grow in grace. You promise to bring us the kind of joy that will be our strength. And so I pray for every single person in this room this morning that no matter what role we play in our families and what our families look like, that we would become receivers and givers of your grace, God, in the power and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.